there's other stuff there too beyond the patriarchy who knew <laughs> Greetings, hello, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where, loosely defined, we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now, loosely defined. I am Laura Good. I'm Adrian Dobb. And what will we be loosely defining today, Adrian? Today, we're continuing our season-long series of a second look at famous films of the 90s by looking at a film that, as far as I know, is not from the 90s. It was both of our first viewing of it. Yes. In fact, neither of us had had really on our radar. So we're breaking the rules even within the very narrow confines in which we established them like four episodes ago. But I'm still <laughs> really glad we did. So this, like our last film, Miss Congeniality, this one came to us from our guest. Mm-hmm. And it was this perfect thing where like, you know, you invite a film critic on your podcast, you're going to get a good recommendation. And we just got a pretty fucking good recommendation. I know. And so, yeah, it didn't totally fit. But like, it's a movie that we can genuinely recommend. We can say like, watch this movie which I I guess I can say that about Miss Congeniality but it's like you know what I mean right like I'm, I'm like I, I, yeah can't full-throatedly recommend young feminists immerse themselves there's a wink somewhere and there's no wink here yeah 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 fair enough we really just enjoyed this movie yes that's true this was like an earnestly enjoyable feminist movie and not something that we were training as much of a critical eye on it felt like yeah as you say Ingu suggested this film it does feel a little bit like cheating at the game to just like invite a really distinguished tv and film critic to join our podcast and then take credit for her selection but that's what we're gonna do and um Mm -hmm. i think that the way in which it fits into the theme and even though this film was produced in the 2010s is it's depicting a very 80s specific childhood in sweden and uh, there's many vibes of like sort of under supervised latchkey kids and punk rock and a lot of other sort of like recognizable cultural signifiers to we we elder millennials. Do you consider yourself an elder millennial? I believe the preferred term is now geriatric millennial. Preferred so. to whom, sir? <laughs> I don't know. I certainly feel geriatric. You don't consider yourself a Gen Xer. I was wondering how you self-designate. No, no, not really. Yeah, I will never embrace the term geriatric millennial. I will lead campaigns against the term geriatric anything. Fair play. Don't even get me started on geriatric pregnancy, for Christ's sake. But, um, But I am an elder millennial. And so is Ingu. She is exactly my age. I feel like a millennial and I feel geriatric. So I understand why other people take issue with this, but I am in no position. As they say, in therapy, Adrian, both of those things can be true at the same time. But just to say a little bit about our fellow elder millennial Ingu Kang, who is like kind of my Twitter bestie, like Ingu and I just like DM on Twitter. Like if our Twitter DMs are ever released, both of our careers and lives will be over. You just vibe. You're vibing on Twitter. We're vibing on Twitter all the time. I was super proud and happy to see that she recently won the LA Press Club's NAEG Award for TV Criticism. No big deal slash huge deal. At the time we recorded with Ingu, she was the TV critic for The Hollywood Reporter, which is not an easy gig to get. But in the intervening weeks, Ingu has actually just been announced as the brand new TV critic for a little publication called The Washington Post. And that is really not an easy gig to get. Before that, she's previously written for places like Slate, MTV News, which is where I really first fell in love with her work, and a whole bunch of other places. She is a seasoned professional in addition to my good friend. And she had so many smart things to say because literally that's what people hire her to do. Yeah, so maybe we say a few things about this film, unlike the other films. Yes, we may not assume that our audience is as familiar with this film as they might have been with Miss Congeniality. Yeah, and so this is a film from 2013 by Lucas Mutison, or Mutison, I don't know how to say that, a Swedish film director who's done a lot of really good work, and we'll, we talk about that a little bit in the episode. Mm-hmm. It's set in Stockholm in 1982 mm-hmm. and centers on two 
13-year-old girls who want to start a punk band and about the process of growing up, right? But the instigating thing is that they're trying to start a band and they fall in with a girl who's very different from them. I suppose the Nordic equivalent of hijinks ensue in that it's not actually <laughs> real hijinks. Uh, it's all very understated <laughs> and very thoughtful and, and whatever, but like... It's very like junk food mischief kind of hijinks. Yeah. Yeah. This is probably what passes for knee slapping in Sweden. Yes. But yeah, it's a really lovely and really sweet film. And I think our affection for it came through mm -hmm. uh, in our conversation with Ingu. Mm -hmm. It was like, we talk about this a little in the conversation, but for me, the viewing experience was just like wholesome in the best way in that you see some like, you know, boundary transgression and growth and mischief making, but it's all done under the aegis of like a lot of really earnestly felt female solidarity. And it's just a really fun film. Like it was a really pleasurable viewing experience, which, you know, in these Panda Express times really, uh, counts for a lot, I think. Oh, yeah. I know I cannot watch like things that break me right now. Yeah. It's just yeah. not in the cards. So we are the best will not break you. And that is that is a resounding endorsement for me. Yeah. So check it out. And it's free. Check it out. And it's free on YouTube. Yes, as we've mentioned. If you want to view along with us, we've done our best, at, except for at points where we have otherwise noted, like I remember we couldn't find um, DiCaprio's Total Eclipse. We've kind of tried to choose stuff this season that is broadly viewable, so mm -hmm. you can watch along with us if you want yeah. to grab your popcorn. I've really gotten back into microwave popcorn lately. Mm. It is delicious. You can dump butter on it. You can season it. It is so It's I'm a told. beautiful pattern. Yeah, I'm a chocolate guy. I just I think I've watched this one. Yeah, just Ritter Sport all day. Just the Ritter Sport all day, every day. Uh, literally, it's 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 a problem. Uh, <laughs> I feel like seventy five percent of your like blood is Ritter Sport. Oh, probably, and the, whatever nuts are in the in the Ritter Sport. Maybe we, we should just welcome folks and invite them to you know butter their best popcorn. Grab your favorite snack. Put on the best punk record you own and follow us into We Are the Best. Pin a safety pin in your ear and come along. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy. I remember this film that you assigned to us, We Are the Best, from 2013, being on the film festival trail roughly the same time I was. Is that how you first encountered the movie at a film festival? Uh, actually, yeah. I think it was for IFF Boston, which is, I guess, the independent film festival in Boston. I had never heard of it. My friend, for some reason, was like, let's go watch this. And I was like, sure, whatever. Like, I don't really care. And then I was like, oh, this is, like, the best movie I've seen in a very long time. It, like, it's one of those, like, film festival experiences that film festivals always promise and seldom deliver. But it delivered in this case. <laughs> Totally. I'm coming at this from a specific angle just because I know how many festival films you've seen and how mm, like differently toned festival films often are than this like joyful comedy. Like what struck you about it when you were watching it in the theater? How is it different than other festival films to your critical mind? I mean, it's heavily accomplished. So I would maybe be remiss in not pointing that out. But I... I went into the movie not realizing it was loosely based on the experiences of the director's wife, Coco, who is the inspiration for our main character, Bobo. No way! And I thought it was just sort of this, like, very wonderfully observed coming-of-age tale about these girls who were basically sort of being graduated against their will into the 80s and sort of being told that rebellion was passe and therefore there was like no point in it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't really remember what struck me so much about it then other than sort of its portrayal of girl friendship among like a very particular preteen set. But I think rewatching it now, some years later, I think for the third time or so, I just love its focus on this like very precise time, I think, in one's like early adolescence. So like 
not to get all academic here, but Ford has this uh, concept called... This would be a terrible forum for that. (laughs) (laughs) None of that intellect. To briefly get academic, Ford has this concept called like polymorphous perversity, where like when you are a baby, your body is like trying to figure out like what set of like fetishes and desires and whatnot it is going to become capable of and attach itself to. And I think a lot of this movie is about sort of this like period of your time when you are growing up, when you have all of these like impulses that like you don't even know where they're coming from and you're looking for an outlet for those impulses and you don't quite know like how you want to branch out or like what is available to you, but you're sort of just like feeling it out. And it's weird that this is such an important thing in people's lives and yet we don't really talk about it. And I think that the other thing that I really noticed this time around is that it is a version of childhood, I guess, like I kind of can see myself in where these girls have hours and hours and hours of free time and they are basically allowed to explore their interests within certain parameters. And it's feels so much in contrast to sort of like the heavily discoursed childhoods that are always in the news where children are overscheduled and they're sort of like taught skills that they may or may not be interested in. And a lot of these skills are really like individualized. And so they don't really have a chance to make connections with like other kids who are like learning the exact same things. Um, And so... It just feels like a portrait of a very crucial time of growing up that just for whatever reason uh, doesn't really get discussed very much in the movies. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I mean, it almost feels like the swan song for the latchkey kid, doesn't it? Totally. Like, so the last time <laughs> kids got to be like, well, you know, you have those four hours now and you can do whatever the fuck you want. And no one's like, oh, you know, stay away from strangers with candy. You will be drafted into Satanism. I mean, it's also, it's sweet. So <laughs> that probably would have been okay. But right, it feels like this nostalgic view of childhood, but like at a very specific historic moment, mm-hmm. which I must admit, I, I hadn't, caught the first time I watched it. Me too. (laughs) It's also kind of, it does feel like kind of the end of the 70s more than the 80s, even though it's 1982, because of that youth center. I have so many thoughts about the youth center. I'm so curious. Well, so before we get there, I was like, do we have to do a plot recap to make sense of this for any audience members who haven't seen it? But then as I was having that thought, I was like, the plot recap is basically two girls are friends. They meet a third girlfriend. They decide to start a punk band. Like, that's the plot, right? Am I missing anything major? There are some conflicts that they resolve in ways that are not predictable and not cliched. There are like relationship-based conflicts, but like as Ingu was saying, and you too, Adrian, like it's a very loose-limbed movie with a lot of time to hang out in a way that is kind of a fantasy, you know, or at least to us, we overscheduled adults. It it was really sort of so smartly descriptive of a particular historic moment because Moodison has done, so the director, Lucas Moodison, has done that kind of disaffection before, right? You've probably both seen, what's it called in English? Show Me Love, I guess, Fucking Amal, which is one of his earlier movies where basically it's sort of a coming out movie in a Swedish middle school. And they are disaffected in quite the same way that Bobo and Clara are, but that could happen any time. And this one, mm-hmm. you know when it's happening, right? Mm-hmm. Right. They're both kind of gender non-conforming in an interesting way, mm-hmm. but they no longer have sort of punk to fall back on as the explanation for that, right? Like it's it's starting to be noticeable. <laughs> yeah, and I just got fascinated with that youth center and its sheer magnificence in a way, right? Like. There's a moment where they like seem surprised that the youth center doesn't have a guitar for the practice room. Like, that's social democracy for you. It's like (laughs) the youth center is out of bass guitars. It's like, wow. It's clearly sort of this pre-Thatcherite, pre-kind of neoliberal moment when the idea that like maybe it's the state's business to teach kids how to make punk music about how the state sucks, like had a degree of plausibility instead of being like, you know... Either go to a Kaplan's test prep or get arrested for... (laughs) Satanic haircuts? Suspected satanic uh, activities or something like that, right? It does feel like 
yeah, it kind of feels like the the last sort of gasp of like kind of a 70s freedom, freedom and way of spending time and resources in a way, right? I think there's like things about this movie that feel very universal. And then there's other things about this movie that feel extremely Scandinavian. (laughs) I would be shocked, honestly, if like that kind of like youth center didn't exist now. And it actually reminded me a lot of the Korean American church, that milieu that like I grew up in, where there is certainly some room for mentorship outside of like an academic setting. But it also is like pretty definitively like coded as like male authority. So the youth center is this like great place for these girls to learn how to figure out like how to start a punk band. Mm -hmm. But also it's very much determinate on like male favor because the people in charge of the youth center are basically like these like really like dad rock dudes. Mm -hmm. My first question with the dudes running it was, see, this is why I don't know. Sweden so well, but like in, I can tell you that in 1982 Germany, those would have been people who wanted to do alternative service instead of getting conscripted into the army. Yeah, the cool 20-year-olds who populated my world. Like aging crust punks? Yeah. I mean, not necessarily. Also just like, <laughs> who wants to go to the fucking army, right? The cool 20-year-olds that sort of structured my life world, sort of 1990 or 1988 to 1990, which would have been sort of that space for me were a lot of these people who did alternative service. It's one of these things that I meant to look up before talking about it, because it just feels as extremely nuanced or extremely granular in the way it presents this world. Like, you know, that that, that you can always sort of tell where everyone's coming from and how they all fit together. Yeah, I mean, it's telling as we sit here in the United States and the three of us put our heads together and, like, try to just think our way through the idea of a youth center where you can just drop in and there are resources and there are caring adults and you don't have to pay. (laughs) And I think it's implied that at least one of the main characters has a single parent too, which tracks with why these kids have a lot of unsupervised time with the parents working. But there is no American analog to that. You know, like you were saying, Ingu, there are certain sort of like community-based organizations that will crop up in response to the specific needs of that one community but there isn't anything that's like centralized by the government. Sweden, man, what a trip. I will say, having grown up in Minnesota, watching the credits to this film was basically like reading my high school yearbook. (laughs) Um, It was like, these are so familiar. (laughs) But what did you guys, I mean, cutting to the meat of like the chick flick question, what did you both think of the various gender presentations and sort of conflicts in this movie? Hair comes up a lot for me when I think about this. (laughs) It's so much based on just like what specific stage of like development that they're in, right? You're catching these like 13 year old girls right before they have to start really getting intensively in their heads about like, how do they look to other people? Am I more attractive than my friend? And if I'm not like, what does that mean about like my prospects of ever feeling like a desired person? I think that on the part of like the audience, there is a little bit of like a shielding that we get in that it's not the full throes of adolescence. But I also really like that probably because I have a lot more nostalgia toward like that period of my life than I do like full blown adolescence, Mm. which fucking blue. But I just love this idea of like these girls feeling out what rebellion could mean in their own little worlds. It feels a little bit like a proto-Daria. Like obviously this came out like much earlier. So when I say proto, I mean like it's just like a couple of years younger for these girls. And I think that the way that Daria sort of like channeled its disaffection was in like very particular ways where they were like really into trashy tv shows and they were really into like making fun of the popular kids and they haven't sort of like been hardened even like those adolescent rituals yet Mm -hmm. because everything about their emotions and the way that they are acting them out is so inchoate and so like wonderfully inchoate where nothing seems quite firm yet and so you're just sort of like moving around the world as these blobs at the same time I think another thing that's really great about the gender presentation just like very literally speaking is you just like so rarely see children dressed like children and this movie part of it is that like 
it takes place in Sweden in wintertime. <laughs> so of course they're going to be bundled up, but they're also in these very like large sweaters and these like loose pants all the time. And part of that is like a rebellion against the popular girls. But part of that is just like obviously them feeling out their own style. And Moodison lets them look really, really cool. Mm. But it's also very much into the observation that some kids are just going to know precisely how to like give themselves or their friends like a cool haircut and other kids are not going to have that artistic ability. And as someone who definitely had her own share of terrible hair experiments during their adolescence, I really (laughs) related. We should say that there is that a, that a, somewhat disastrous uh, hair experiment does form an, probably the most sort of dramatic plot point of the entire that and a, a, <laughs> a punk concert are maybe the the two most ten, the tensest moments in what is overall not very tense film it's a dramatic shift but in the canon of adolescent girl media the hair transformation by the cool new friend i think is fairly canonical you know like i'm obviously thinking about my so-called life in the pilot episode when angela chase gets her hair dyed red by her cool new best friend, Rayanne. I was just thinking about the way Ingu was talking about the inchoateness and the blobbiness of their personalities. And one of the things that's interesting, right, throughout the movie, it's kind of shadowed by what it's not, right? Like the kind of adolescent picture that it isn't. And one part of that that really stuck out to me was that their rebellion is not ultimately that oppositional. It's the dialogue, right? Like again and again, they kind of use what's given to them. They like explore the space and you can sort of tell this is new to them. Like they probably haven't been allowed to go out that long, right? Like in the very beginning, they they get back at the snooty punk boys by like using the sort of pedagogic mission of like, well, if you didn't sign your name up, then you really can't have the practice room right now. Like against the popular kids, there's a very charming moment when you think that it's headed for this horrible confrontation, but instead they basically get conned into going to church. And it just feels like they encounter their world in this way. This one where one of them, the very beginning, I think her parents are fighting and she just kind of makes it part of the phone conversation. It just feel like they have a way of not sort of butting up against the world yet, but kind of starting to manipulate it or move it in a way that they might want to inhabit it. I thought that I had the exact same sense that like there's a movie that could do the same thing with 16 year olds and would be unwatchable. And this is just so charming precisely because they do not ultimately butt up against things in predictable Mm. ways. It's actually always interesting and fun to watch them navigate this world. And to add to Adrian's point about all of the things that we sort of expect from the movie but we don't get one of them is that they don't get these like magical music powers by the end of the movie right, great point. you know point. like yeah. when one of them needs like a guitar like it's only through the largesse of this community center that they even get like a guitar very late into the movie for their band right oh and i think that there was like one point at which very early in the movie when they have just decided to come up with starting a band, which like never has a name, by the way, even. Oh, you're so right. And punk band names are usually so critical. Yeah. Clara, yeah. like, I think just like brings in all of the pots in her parents' kitchen and like puts them on the bed and like just bangs on them. Nobody sort of has $800 that like appear magically to get like a professional drum set. This is really, I think there's a whole plot point where they drag in trash from the street that happens to be like a bunch of like magical yarn, but like it's also literally trash. And so there's this sort of idea that there is this abundance to be taken from the world, Mm. which again is this real or is a Scandinavia like I don't know but I do love that they're sort of (laughs) creatures who are like figuring out their world as opposed to more like American movie where they would just suddenly like have these big material gains that feel very movie like I'm thinking about more specifically American portrayals of this kind of preteen era and this like totally dates me but the first people who come to mind are like Hillary Duff, you know, like super styled with like very, very highlighted hair and like a ton of makeup. And I think kind of to synthesize what both of you were saying, I would argue that I think the 
veracity and the authenticity that you were pointing out, Adrian, is like specifically enabled by what you were pointing out, Ingo, which is this movie's like steadfast refusal to hypersexualize these girls, you know, or to make them look more mature than they are, or to assign them interests that are beyond what would be within the scope of a 12 year old, you know? And like, Inga, when you were talking about that very blobby kind of preformed period of like early adolescence, I was also thinking about the depictions of eating in the movie and how like joyful and orgiastic they have these dives. That ice cream scene. Yes, the ice cream scene. Like they dive into these piles of junk food together and it's clear that like the super Christian girl has been very restricted from sweets and like that kind of stuff. So like there's an element of novelty. But just the idea of three girls unselfconsciously eating junk food together is much more plausible, to my mind at least, at age 13 than that same scene occurring at, at age 17. You know, if they were 17, one of them would be on a diet because she's trying to lose weight for the prom and one of them wouldn't want to eat in front of her boyfriend and like that kind of stuff would start to intervene. But at this precipice of like preteenhood, we're only seeing those things start to loom on the horizon and the eatings seem to really reflect that to me. Have either of you seen Lilia Forever? No. Mm -mm. By the same director. I mean, I don't know if I can recommend that movie because it's <laughs> incredibly hard to watch. It's basically, I think, based on the letter that a young girl from, I want to say, Russia or Estonia wrote before throwing herself out the window and it's all about sex trafficking and all this stuff. It's, it's mm. horribly rough. And like... This was not too long before this movie, I think. Well, I guess maybe like eight or nine years before this movie. And like, I do think that this movie has a little bit of in what it doesn't permit itself, right? That like even the romance between the girls, right? Which would have been perfectly possible, right? Like it's kind of deliberately underplayed because the director is clearly very worried about any kind of prurience um, and mm -hmm. show me love, which is, as I say, about uh, two girls falling in love in the middle school likewise is extremely careful about like you're invited into this world only up to a point the director is extremely reluctant to give you what you know i think hillary Duff is kind of one extreme but like i think laura was pointing to this that like this is a kind of story about teens that is not inviting in adult gazes all the way right that's right yeah. One thing I also really love is that even though it is in many ways like this like very idyllic view of female friendship, mm -hmm. there's definitely fissures between them. And I find those fissures so fascinating. One is Faith because Hedvig, the third girl, the only girl who knows how to play an instrument, is very Christian. And the other two girls like discriminate against her because they're sort of like, well, like, we'll try to like get her away from God. And Clara, who is like the more bossy, more domineering girl, sort of like makes it a project to provoke her in like a way that feels extremely adolescent. And I guess really, quote unquote, punk in like a very like cheap way. Mm -hmm. And then... I also really love the fissures between Bobo and Clara, and much of that is sort of like Bobo trying to get back at Clara's bossiness by trying to like take her proto-boyfriend, who we sort of <laughs> learn about later. And you don't really know like where the desire for the boy ends and like her wanting some sort of like revenge at her friend mm, begins. Mm -hmm. But it is part of that same like really productive ambivalence that really guides like a lot of the movie. Yeah, it's almost like a homosociality, right? Like between girls, like the boys are only there to basically facilitate the relationships between the girls, giving them nuance. Even girls who aren't wearing makeup, who are sort of butch presenting, who have like really short punk haircuts, you know, like it's incredible. It's not incredible. It's totally believable. It's striking that the male gaze has the power to drive a wedge even in that, you know? I don't know. And I was also so sort of tickled. I took the conflict between those girls over the emergence of the boy very seriously, because I know that conflict. 
But at the same time, there was something so like wholesomely hilarious to me about it because Clara's coming in at Bobo like, you cheated on me with my boyfriend and blah, 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 blah. And like in the previous scene, we've just seen two 13 year olds (laughs) go from sitting two feet apart to sitting three inches apart. And like, that's what's being qualified as cheating. (laughs) And it's just like from an adult gaze, that was like really poignantly funny But I guess with a more scholarly gaze, it's also really interesting to see how early kids pick up on these messages. Like, they're sort of play-acting adult relationships, right? She's like, I know I'm supposed to be mad that you took this thing I had claimed as mine. I don't quite understand the nuances of the behaviors (laughs) that, like, were involved with you cheating on my boyfriend, but, like, I know that I feel primally wounded by that. Like, there's there's a mixture of primal emotion and, like, play-acting of adult relationships in that to me. And I think part of that is just Clara feeling surprised. Sure. And maybe, like, a little betrayed that, like, Bobo doesn't only want to be her sidekick. Right. Right. That Bobo has, like, aspirations beyond just doing whatever. she's told yeah yeah and so like i don't know i mean there's all of these like little tiny rebellions in the movie Mm. but like bobo's rebellion against clara in some ways is sort of like one of the most meaningful which i guess sort of speaks a lot to how there are all of these like patriarchal forces that are about to run them over like a truck but like Mm -hmm. there's other stuff there too beyond the patriarchy who knew (laughs) who knew i was trying to think of what other films from the american side of filmmaking i would analogize to this movie and i just realized a really chilling one would be 13 you know like Mm -hmm. in some ways 13 is very much the american version of this movie it has a lot of the same elements it has like the central relationship of two girls kind of falling in like a lightly sexually charged best friend love it has one of those girls operating with a single parent it has them getting into all sorts of trouble that they're not ready for Mm. it's obviously a much darker movie in a very different tone and setting but it actually remixes many of the same kind of classic elements of adolescent storytelling or a coming of age story it's probably a better way of putting it i mean one thing i feel like that will always set this kind of movie apart and i don't want to sort of say that's better but it's more about like what's possible in american cinema or what's what would be realistic in american cinema exactly the absence of money as a factor right ingo kind of pointed to this already about the guitar like that there's never like oh we could win first prize and then we can finally buy a guitar right like there is capitalism is not the way time is told here it's not the way the story functions right and on the one hand that's got to be ideological too right i mean like this is not some kind of island paradise this is still a capitalist country in the 1980s but i feel like the attempt to kind of disempower capitalism as a storytelling tool is pretty noticeable i feel Mm -hmm. like it's a story of adolescence in which you know stuff is still kind of unimportant. And I think any American Mm -hmm, version mm -hmm. of this would have to be pretty open about the fact that money that parents have or don't have, cars that you do or do not have access to, contests that you do or do not win, clothes that you can or cannot afford, are somehow big drivers of the conflicts and of the way the story proceeds. And here it feels extremely on the nose and not a bad way necessarily, but definitely noticeably for me that that's completely neutralized as a propulsive force, I guess. Ingu, I have a super niche question tailored just for you that I was just thinking about. So as I'm thinking about this like analog question, I'm like, okay, what other depictions of adolescence have I seen that are roughly contemporary with this story's timeline? And one that comes to mind is the FX series, The Americans, which I know you were also a really big fan of. Do you have any comparisons that you would draw between how the Americans depicts adolescence in 1982 and how We Are the Best depicts adolescence in 1982? (laughs) 
I'm not heading for anything. I just like realized that those were like in the same time period and covering a lot of the same issues. I mean, maybe just like the fact that these projects both take female adolescent earnestness super seriously. Yep. Might be one of them. I mean, in the Americans, you have a teenage girl. It's like basically like the first person in like the entire show to like figure out that like her parents are spies. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and so yeah her version of teenage rebellion is that she because she's like a very deeply caring person like she's going to try to become like a spy in order to like help the world or like help save the world in some way that like she hasn't fully figured out but also she has converted to Christianity despite mm-hmm. her parents' atheism. Mm-hmm. And as a rebellion. Yes. Show like takes her faith and her desire to do good like really seriously in a way that I think right. is never really done. So I guess that's sort of the only main element as far as adolescence goes. I think that's I completely agree with that. I think that's super smart. It does also remind me that On the Americans, I don't think we ever really get a sense of whether Elizabeth and Philip are good parents. And what I really like about We Are the Best, thinking about Bobo's relationship with her single mom, who is like always dating some guy and basically like not parties. Yes. Who is like not there half the time. Like, I love the way that this movie opens where it's a house party birthday dinner for the mom who's turning 40. The mom's boyfriend says something about like, oh, she's like 40, but she's still as horny as a teenager. And basically... In like the first two minutes of the movie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. you see like Bobo like sitting there in a corner and like she's being out cooled by her 40 year old mom. And that is like our introduction to this character. But I also love that. I think if this was an American production, there would be no way that like this mom isn't demonized in some way for not being there for her daughter. But Bobo's mom, within the context of the movie, even though she's a little bit careless and she doesn't always know whether her daughter is like actually home or not, she's never taken for a bad parent. She's just a really hands-off parent. And I really like that. And it's not sort of this, like, convenient escape of judgment or this convenient, like, aversion toward judgment that the Americans does. This is sort of like a fairly affirmative look at this type of motherhood and saying if she was there all the time, then Bobo wouldn't get to have all of these adventures. And so... Exactly, right? Because her need to figure shit out opens space up for the kids, right? Moodison also made that movie Together about the commune in the 70s. And that one, I feel like, is a little judgier where, like, parents figuring out their shit out while they're also being parents. Like, that movie has a slightly more, like... Well, I guess it's satirical. It's poking gentle fun of them. But I thought that this movie was deeply respectful of, like, staying out of your child's life because you've got shit going on. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you that, like, it's all about the magic of that space that is provided by your parents being people and being their own people. Mm, The parenting power of benign neglect. It's a really good (laughs) message for me to meditate on right now in this particular Panda Express. I think as someone who is the product of benign neglect, like high expectations, but also benign neglect for me to like figure out what I need to do in order to be the kind of person that I am. I don't know. I guess like I really appreciate that something like that is out there. And I think as I've gotten older, I realize that the kind of freedom that my parents gave me isn't right for everyone. I don't think it was right for my brother, honestly. That's a different story. But as like a highly independent person, I certainly am so relieved that I spent hours and hours of my own time like doing whatever the fuck I want to. You know, as you were talking, I was just thinking that's really powerful and convincing. And I was thinking how in We Are the Best, we see benign neglect's capacity to engender like artistic growth and exploration. And one thing that I think, coming back to the Americans for a second, because I will never stop being obsessed (laughs) with the Americans, one thing that I think both the Americans and we are the best present as like sort of an argument 
either for or against benign neglect, maybe the viewer can decide, is the children or teenagers in both of those stories are forced to figure out how to assess threat on their own. You know, like we see in the Americans, there's that really key scene where they get picked up by a guy who offers them a ride as hitchhikers. And then that guy turns out to be super skeevy. There isn't that much overt threat in We Are the Best, but I'm thinking of the scene where they're like busking in the subway station (laughs) and getting all sorts of different responses. Everything from, which I thought was a really interesting study of human behavior too. Like everything from people just like giving them some coins, no questions asked, to people giving them these sort of moralistic lectures. Those kids are also riding the subway all over Stockholm, like on their own at age 12. And so I think the implication is that like these children left to their own devices have to learn I'm sorry, the very fact that you find that remarkable is the most American thing Absolutely. I've Absolutely. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Well, what age? 12. Try 8. Really? Is that when you started to use public transit? Because this is a six. really key... I, I biked to school at 6 and started taking the bus at probably 6 and a half. I mean... <laughs> By yourself? Yeah. What, what do you mean? I'm just asking. I'm an American. I don't know anything, Adrian. Sometimes with friends. I mean, usually with friends, but like not with an adult or anything. This is a big question that I've had about raising kids in San Francisco is like I was raised in the suburbs, you know, like I don't have a native lexicon of like public transit do's and don'ts. So like, I'm actually hanging on every word you're saying right now. Well, I mean, I guess I'm still thinking about the 1982 kind of year in comparison because 1980s parents in the United States, of course, were also famously absent, but it was always kind of played for a laugh, right? E.T. being the classic example. And those kids are so young that really parental neglect is a little bit less justifiable. And certainly if you have an alien living under your roof and you just do not ever grok it, like, you know, go come home more. There's a kind of weird thing in which like, I mean, like Stranger Things has played with this more recently, right? Where like the joke is basically that these parents are unaware that the TV show Stranger Things is happening anywhere near them right even though like unmarked vans are constantly in their driveway this kid shows up and is then gone again the police chief goes missing kids get there but there is this kind of thing where like in the 80s parental neglect it becomes kind of this outsized thing right like it's played almost as a caricature and there's something about Mm. the movie like we're the best where it's very attentive to what really likely happens when mom is not home right that you might go busking in the subway and that you might get some dumb comments about it right and no threat of harm whatsoever (laughs) yeah exactly yeah that's really interesting but some cringe yeah i also love that scene where There's just like some random afternoon where they decide that they're just going to go into like a fast food restaurant and beg for food. And I guess there's, I don't know, someone out there who might find it offensive or something. But I really love that scene because when you're 12 years old or 13 years old, like the woman behind the cashier who is refusing to give you a small bag of fries for zero dollars is probably the fastest in your life. (laughs) Totally. The scale of like your world is so small. And I'm glad that the movie keeps it small because I think it's true to the characters. Mm. One thing we haven't actually talked about is like this movie's treatment of punk. Ooh, go there. (laughs) A topic about which I basically have no idea. I will say that one of the things that the movie does is to sort of like divorce this idea of punk as a kind of musical rebellion from male rage and like male obnoxiousness. And I think that you can like argue in all sorts of ways about like whether that is like good or bad or whatever but the point is that a musical art form can be just like a musical art form that can be adopted and given new meanings by whoever practices it Mm -hmm. and i think in that sense these girls appropriation of a very like masculine art form to voice like their own discontent is it cute like yes but also is it like genuine on their part like of course yes i love that argument and i feel like the presence of how instruments are used in the movie Mm. really stands up to support it because in our initial introduction to these characters let me tell a story i don't know how to ski i grew up in a very flat place 
my husband is incredibly athletic and like just so disgusting in the way he will just like instantly pick something up and be like teaching other people by the end of the day. So one point in time, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, we were in Tahoe and I was going skiing in Tahoe for the first time. And like, I grew up skiing a little bit in Minnesota, but like the hills in Minnesota are like egg cartons, you know, this is not like California mountains. I took like a run down and just sort of like hoped for the best. And I got to the bottom of the mountain and my husband, Pat, was like laughing so hard at me. And I was like, why are you laughing? And he was like, I know you don't know how to ski, but you just plunged down that mountain like you had no fear. And he was like, that's what I'm going to call you. No skill, no fear. (laughs) That's... I'm going to wear that like a badge of honor. The girls at the beginning with the drums and bass were like 100% no skill, no fear. But then you get Hedvig coming in and she's already a trained classical guitarist. She comes in and gives this very impressive performance. And then to me, the payoff of that whole setup is when they finally get the guitar at the youth center and the scraggly haired men who are appointed to watch the youth, I don't know what the fuck their title would be, start just automatically assuming that they have to teach these girls the basic chords. And it's such a satisfying moment for the audience, right? Because the space between what the characters know and what the audience knows is the audience already knows that Hedvig is like an incredible guitarist and we're just waiting for these stringy haired guys to get shown up. But I feel like the ability to play an instrument is very integral in terms of like sort of who has dominion in like this punk space or like any musical space. And that's one really effective subversion that the girls make of that expectation that they're not going to have any idea what to do with instruments. There's again kind of a generational thing, right? Like from the very beginning, the objection to these girls' punk allures are not, hey, you're girls, or it is like, punk is stupid, it's punk is dead. It's like, this was your older siblings' rebellion. This isn't yours anymore. And I think that's what's behind the, like, straggly-haired youth counselors. Like, it's also a generational thing. They take themselves to be the owners of the proprietors of this musical movement, and the kind of lateness. There's a little bit of a melancholia here, too, right? Oh, they're totally thinking about when they were teenagers and, like, when they were noodling out the guitar. Yeah, right? Well, but I think so is the film itself. I think the film itself is thinking like, you know, this is a film made in the 2000s. It probably knows that a lot of these things we look at from today's perspective and we think, wow, we couldn't do that anymore, right? Like, they're meant to feel, I think, a little foreign. And there is this kind of belatedness. And also, I think, kind of provincialism to the rebellion of these girls, right? That, like, Mm. the beating heart... I mean, I don't want to offend any Swedish listeners. If you're there, we love you. Please don't be mad at us. Talk. But I would say that I can't imagine Stockholm having been the white beating heart, you know, white blinding center of punk incandescent rage in the the 70s, right? Like these kids are not in London. They're not in New York. And I think that that's, things come to them late and come to them pre-digested, come to them already dead. Oh, yeah. It's sort of part of this. I remember this so well that like, especially at that age, maybe a little younger, where like every time you discover something that you think is cool, you find out that it was cool three years ago and and you're just now coming around to it. And like, that is also what early adolescence is right that like you're still kind of indebted to a slightly older group of children's or young people's like sense of what's awesome and they're never gonna let you they're never gonna let you forget it oh, right man. people with older siblings have all the currency whatever you come up with as being like awesome they're gonna be like oh god really even though you know they liked it until like yesterday <laughs> so that kind of belatedness to me also just like it felt really really good but the way this era and the age of these characters intersect i just love that so much adrian i'm embarrassed to have to ask you this question i'm embarrassed that i don't know already where are you in the birth order of your family <laughs> i'm the first you're the fir- okay i know you have a whole theory about this and that's why i've withheld this until now I am, <laughs> i'm a firstborn son To your point, I was interrupting you yet again to say that, like, with that lag time in coolness, it was the kids who had older siblings who really had all of the power to to discern trends, you know, and, like, get to them early. And neither you nor I had that advantage. Yeah, although I feel like for me, it was often also my friend's older siblings. I still remember this, like, feeling, this is one of my first experiences with, like, Oh, capitalism is this hamster wheel as like a six-year-old. I would finally break down and like buy into a trend with my hard-earned Deutschmarks or whatever, you know, like <laughs> like I would spend my five Deutschmarks on something to like finally partake of a trend and then find out that like it had gone stale like last week or something like that. And I'm like, this oh, feels you tragic yeah. German child. 
like, why? How, how could Masters of the Universe no longer be cool? <laughs> they even have a sense of what the lexicon for like the insults are. Yes. There's yeah. a point where Clara and Bobo and Hedvig are coming back from meeting the boy punks and Bobo is keenly aware that she is going to be the one that would not have a hookup because like the boy band trio... They're really a boy band. Us, like, a third member. And so, like, because Clara and Hedvig are gorgeous, Bobo is sort of, like, the fifth wheel. And when Clara says something about them, she's like, oh, they look like mall punks. Funniest line in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) The trend of insults seem to appear simultaneously. I just really love that point about, like, that feeling of dislocation from the center and how that affects how you receive culture from elsewhere. I love that point too. And I'm thinking about how it made its way into my consciousness. And one thing that used to happen all the time when I was younger, especially with music, is like, my parents are really old. They're almost two generations older than me rather than one generation older than me. And so like all of the music I grew up listening to was like straight 60s oldies. So like the songs that I knew the words to were not the songs that were like on the cool station of the radio. They were like, I don't know, Beatles songs. And that was like Mm. continually humiliating to me. You know, I have to say this last comparison point I will make to the Americans and then I promise I will stop. Another thing that We Are the Best has in common with the Americans is the setting up of a youth counselor style character who has, to me, a hairstyle that clearly presupposes that he will be a child molester, but then the story does not bear that out. <laughs> like, both the both Pastor Tim and the Americans and the two, like, crust punk youth center older guys looked so creepy to me in the way they were styled. And I don't know if that's just, like, an 80s thing that I'm misinterpreting. Did you guys not find them really creepy? Am I just a freak here? I just thought it was, like, a Scandinavian thing. <laughs> I suppose. I mean, I think it's worth thinking about how every movie about adolescence is a movie about aging more generally, right? Like part of why you can distinguish Mm -hmm. yourself from your parents is that they get older. And one of the things, right? I mean, like it starts with a 40th birthday party. That seems to me not an accident from a director who's obviously closer in age to the parents than to the children. I think that that's a really important thing. Like I was just thinking about this you know, what you were saying in terms of like 60s pop in in your house. Mm. My parents, I feel like in Europe, the 70s sort of were a very kind time for being kind of a little older but still hip and with it i think punk was sort of the first break right because like think about it like who's gonna hate on glam right then there was a whole folk revival right it was a pretty poppy decade i feel like and it therefore made aging easier and certainly i remember having the really humiliating experience of being like i discovered this really cool band and my dad's like yeah we have that somewhere here's an lp and i'm like ah how will i rebel <laughs> if i can and i'll bring it back to the americans one of the bands that sort of ended that where it was like this blows and they were like hey we like this was fleetwood mac i was gonna so, say it has to be fleetwood mac <laughs> it is fleetwood mac which i've actually become a lot more tolerant of but that allowed me to sort of build up a barrier for the first time and you know it's like here's this symbol of my rebellion there like, oh yeah we saw him he's great we saw him in concert he was amazing we got so high i'm like Dad, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> oh, you're reminding me how many Rhiannons oh. I went to college with. Like, everybody was named after a fucking Fleetwood Mac song. At least they weren't named the Chains. So that's good. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, that does bring it back to the Americans very effectively. Well, that's right. That's there, too. I was thinking of Tusk. But yes, of course, the Chains there, too. Well, Tusk, I think, is the best use of Fleetwood Mac in the Americans, followed closely by the Chain, which I thought was, like, a better montage than I expected it to be. But. How many tusks did you go to college with? I don't remember a tusk. Yeah. Unfortunate. That didn't make it onto the popular names list. All the boys were named Lindsay. (laughs) Um, Fucking Fleetwood Mac. What was I just reading? There was something that was just coming up about them. I can't remember what it was. I highly recommend that all of our listeners do like a deep Wikipedia dive on the recording of rumors and like how much coke and adultery went into the production of that masterpiece because it's really astounding to me that anybody got anything recorded while they were that high and that's what i have to say about that is there anything we haven't covered about we are the best i felt like we covered it pretty well i have sort of like touched on this like a little bit but i really 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 love the christian mom character yes Mm -hmm. yes (laughs) because she seems to be someone who is like going to be presented like very early on as just like a total rube It's someone who is like solely there to be 
rebelled against, right? Sort of just like the mm-hmm. straw man figure for this punk mm-hmm. rebellion. She looks sort of like Heather Graham, like like 10 years older. She just has those huge blue button eyes and like very long angelic mm-hmm. blonde hair. And then when Clara cuts Hedvig's hair, she says she's all about reporting the girl to the police and Clara's cool parents are just like, oh, like she's so stupid. But then she sets down the girls and she sort of says something along the I, I think maybe Adrian interpreted this scene differently, but she sits down Clara and Bobo and basically is like, what I want you to do as sort of like reparations for Hedvig's haircut is for you to go to church for like the next several weeks or something. Yeah, yeah. And Clara and Bobo are immediately like, no. Right. And she sort of winds down this thing of, I wouldn't do this to you. So like, why would you think it's okay for you to like voice anything on my daughter? And I think the scene ends with this really beautiful line where Clara and Bobo say that like Hedvig didn't tell her no. And then the mom says like, there are many ways to say no. And then, like, the next scene undercuts that whole scene a little bit because it's not really clear whether the mom thought the haircut was non-consensual because of, like, whatever Hedvig said or whatever she told herself. But also, there are many ways to say no is just, like, a beautiful line in the context of, like, a movie Mm -hmm. about girls growing up and figuring out, like, what their boundaries are vis-a-vis the world and even, like, vis-a-vis each other. And so that is just like a line that I really want to spotlight. I love that. And I loved the complexity of that character too, because I think if we were looking at an Americanized version of this film, I'm thinking of Saved right now, the Christian mom character would be framed so differently, right? Like she would be framed as the person who sort of shuts down emotional awareness and discussion instead of the person who facilitates it in my broad theory. And I just thought it was really beautiful the way they gave that mother enough depth. Like there's a line where she kind of says like, this is really uncomfortable, isn't it? This is an uncomfortable situation. And like to see a character, to see a person in life naming discomfort when they see it, I feel like is very rare to see that in a Christian mom movie character is maybe almost rare. Who appears for like three minutes, three yeah. minutes in the yes, movie. Yes, exactly. It's like a masterclass in how to give a character a lot of depth in a very short amount of screen time. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. You know, one other small detail that I was thinking of as we were talking about the sort of verisimilitude and the non-sexualization of these characters is the way they portray cold in the movie is very, very, very believable to me as someone who grew up in a cold climate. You know, like oftentimes when we see stylizations of people like kissing in the snow in movies, you know, like they just have like snowflakes delicately spider webbing their hair. And in this movie, you see people's runny noses, you see their running eye makeup, you see their like flushed cheeks, you know, like you see the sort of physical manifestations of what happens when you live in a area that's cold all the fucking time. And it involves a lot of fucking mucus like, <laughs> running down your face, you know? And so that this movie was willing to pay attention to the mucus as well as everything else <laughs> was just like a level of detail and verisimilitude that I really appreciated. And I thought it really contributed something to the film's like portrait. We are mucus. <laughs> we are mucus. I would imagine that Swedish cinema is overall pretty attuned to the mucus aspects of... I would hope so. <laughs> There's also something interesting that we haven't talked about yet in terms of kind of Scandinavian childhood stories in general. Like... You know, I grew up with the films based on the books of Astrid Lindgren, right? Like, which are like all across yes. Europe. There's the... She's Pippi Long... No, is she Pippi Longstocking? Yeah, Pippi Longstocking. Yeah, 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 yeah. I uh, love Children those. of Noisy Village, Ronya, the ro- robber's daughter, et cetera, et cetera. And like, basically, all of Europe, basically, the, the, the Swedish childhood is an export item, right? Like, somehow the Swedes can do childhood right. And, and <laughs> there is this kind of weird admiration. It's weird, right? It's a mix of being able to tell unusual stories that nevertheless feel universal and kind of idealistic without being cloying, right? Mm. And it's about it's about naturalistic acting. There's something weird there where like Swedish kids films are unembarrassingly acted, right? Think of something like Let the Right One In, right? Where like the two kids are just 
carrying the entire movie and they're so fucking good and then like in the u.s you have to like cast 17 year olds because you're like otherwise it's just gonna be you know a shit show no you actually have to cast 18 year olds in america because of labor laws like that is right, really right. what influences the the aging up of a lot of teenage characters here i think you also have to hire british teenagers because they're better at acting <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah, and they haven't gone through like the Disney factory. Aspiring filmmakers, listen up. Right. <laughs> Key tips and tricks. <laughs> but it is kind of interesting, right? That like on the one hand, we're excited about the kind of portrayal of childhood here, but like there is also right. I mean, Ingu, you're saying like you first encountered this at a festival, right? Like there is also a way in which like you know you hear movie about adolescence and you can just imagine everyone, every film festival programmer in the world like has their eyes light up, right? Where it's like. A movie about uh, young adults from Tajikistan. Everyone's like, oh, I don't know. Like, could be interesting, but like, oh, from Sweden. Ooh. Well, it's from Sweden then, right? <laughs> there, is, there is something funny here where like on the one hand, it's like, I think we all, I think we're right that like it's non-commodified and very sweet for that reason. But that non-commodification is almost its own kind of commodity that you're like, ooh, what did the Swedes cook up with? Mm-hmm. They come up with mm-hmm. this time. What did mm-hmm. they cook up I for us this saying. time? Food for thought. Food for thought. Ludafisk for thought. I am being very cynical. <laughs> I would like to conclude by asking both of you what your favorite TV shows were when you were 12 and 13. Ingu, what were you watching after school? Unfortunately, probably I watched the worst stuff. Um, middle school. Really? Because I asked this question expecting your taste at age 12 to be like the Criterion collection. So this is very disappointing. <laughs> no. Very disappointing. Only the Antonioni part. Is this where we talk about the Snyder Cut? <laughs> Sorry. I was probably watching like Married with Children and Syndication. Really? Like grown up shows? Yeah, because I think that like the only network that was like worth watching after school, after the cartoons. Yes, I was a latchkey kid. Was basically like Fox, and they would just have like syndications of Married with Children, which, like, by the way, no budding feminists should watch. But like, I was also like morbidly fascinated by like this extremely chauvinistic throwback of a sitcom, just because it's sort of way of getting to know the enemy in a sense, right? It's also a show with phenomenal casting. I love <laughs> every single actor in that show. Yes, <laughs> except for I guess Bud Bundy. But Faustino. Yes. I have no idea how they feel about the fact that Mary of the Children apparently was exported to Germany. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's probably what I was watching that and maybe like home improvement. But I feel like, yeah, there was like a lot mm-hmm, of like throwbacks mm-hmm. happening. Adrian, what about you? I mean, I didn't really watch that much TV, we didn't have cable. And, and if you don't have cable in Germany, that means you get only government TV, which is uh, very informative, but ultimately not what a, what 11-year-olds want. I would say that the shows that I was aware of at 11 or 12 would have probably been... And everything comes later, right? Like we get everything, like we would get everything two to three years later and like without any sense of how it hung together, mm-hmm. and sort of move around the schedule. Like they didn't have like traditional blocks. Blocks. <laughs> Sorry, I was just thinking about the Eastern block. <laughs> It was a bad Soviet joke. Sorry? Continue on. I was making a joke about BLOC. Oh. No, but you know, like you didn't have like, what is it called? Like, what was the NBC Thursday block called? Uh, um, Musty TV? Musty TV. Musty TV, right? Like, so it didn't, it didn't have that. Because it's the government, they don't have any interest in having you watch. We glued to the, you know, the boob tube for like <laughs> five hours. So they tended to be like, well... This is this is enough comedy for now, people. <laughs> and, and that, no more now, laughing. Now for a documentary, yes, <laughs> about making carpets. <laughs> like, well, this is a... Anyway, um, so I think for I've me... never been happier to have grown up in America. <laughs> I mean, so I think the two I can remember is I at some point discovered Star Trek: The Next Generation and very much enjoyed that, and I think I I stand by that. And the other one I cannot stand by. In my defense, I have to say that I obviously didn't understand any of the symbolism but it was the deuce of hazard okay i did not know why they had that flag on their car i did not know who why it was called the general <laughs> lee i did not know where georgia was again we are here to judge your childhood in another just, country I let me be clear did, did not uh, know any of it but i um that was the other one that i remember very much enjoying because people kept crashing cars which i thought was neat mm-hmm mm-hmm and, and because I thought that Bo and Luke Duke were kind of hot, so. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. 
I suppose I have to go now, don't I? Um, I remember sixth grade being the turning point where I figured out how to tape things on the VCR by myself, which Ooh. is like a very dated reference. And that was the era, Ingu, maybe you remember this. Do you remember when they used to show Saved by the Bell like four times? It was definitely in reruns by this point. But I remember TBS literally had like two hours, like four separate episodes of Saved by the Bell that they would air each day. And so I, you know, don't mean to brag, but I invented binge watching in 1996 when I would tape Saved by the Bell throughout the entire week and then watch the entire 10 hour block on the weekend. And I've had I've had moments in the intervening years where I've been like, did my parents like worry or were they concerned at all (laughs) that I was watching just like 10 hours of TV on a Saturday? I mean, isn't that like a perfect example of like how why we didn't have this, though? Because we were all, like, sitting around watching TV. Well, my parents were very helicoptery, so it is a little surprising in that sense. But now that I'm a parent myself, I look at that situation and I'm like, why did my parents not object to a child quietly occupying herself (laughs) for an entire Saturday? Like, I think you know the answer to that question, Laura. So I remember watching a lot of Saved by the Bell Many, many Tori Spelling Lifetime movies, also Candace Cameron Lifetime movies, anything, any Lifetime movie starring an early 90s TV star was and is catnip to me. Um, And those are my primary TV memories of that era. We should do an episode on those. Well, Adrian, I have done the research and I am ready anytime. (laughs) So let's get that on the calendar. Let's start. What is the Tori Spelling one that I love? Oh, fuck. Why can't I remember? It's the one that they remade. The something James by Franco. danger, right? It's always something by danger. Mother Seduced may I sleep danger. with danger. Mother may I sleep with danger. Yes, that's Ooh. that's the really like urtext of Lifetime films. I've seen I none of them, but I know that, that that you always want to do something with danger and you need permission. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a perfect place to conclude our interview <laughs> for today. Ingu, thank you so much for your excellent recommendation and even more excellent commentary and insight. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Anytime I can get people to watch this movie, I am on it. Do you have any personal projects or things that you want to plug or direct people to how they can find you on the internet? I think the biggest thing that I've done in the last few what's a who's it's um is the criterion collection essay i wrote for parasite just like on the criterion website awesome and otherwise i am probably hanging out on twitter for far too long i'm at ingu king i-n-k-o-o-k-a-n-g and i write for the hollywood reporter so my stuff is there all right well ingu can be found at ingu king on twitter in my DMs, in the Criterion Collection, and generally on the internet. The internet is where I am. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. 